way in all churches, I was uh, told of a, a pastor, and one day he was preaching on self-discipline. And his third point was the ill effects of alcohol. And so he was getting through this sermon, and um, <clears throat> he got towards the end of it, and he started getting louder. And he said, if I could get all the beer of the world, I would take it. And I would take it down, and I'd pour it all into the river. And he cleared his throat, and he went, <clears throat> and if I could get all the wine the world has to offer, I would take every ounce of it, and I would pour it into the river. And he got louder again. If I could take all the whiskey and all the hard liquor, and I could get every last drop of it, I would pour it into the river. And then he said, now let's pray together. And they began to pray, and the song leader came up. As soon as the man said, amen, the song leader said, now if you would turn to him, 365, shall we gather at the river? <laughs> and so you never really know how that's going to work, but we are so blessed uh, with our, our worship team. They do such a great, great job. In Matthew 16, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he asked a question. He said, who do people say that I am? You remember that? that context Matthew 16 and they say well some say you're John the Baptist some say Elijah some say Jeremiah and some say maybe one of the prophets and they keep walking and then Jesus looks at them directly and says but who do you say that I am I believe that's the most important question that we will ever be asked and listen every one of us will answer that question who do you say that Jesus is? Because I'm convinced the way that we see Jesus will affect the way that we live our life. And there are a lot of folks who have these misconceptions of who Jesus is. And that's true even in our day. Do you realize that there's a lot of folks and even a lot of mainline denominations and they go through their Bible and they find pages they like and they read those and it's almost as if the pages they don't like, they rip out of their Bibles. And what we see is that instead of becoming more like Jesus, a lot of times we try to make Jesus more like us. And when we do that, we will not reach the potential that God has for us. When we try to make Jesus into this 21st century American, we become less like him. When we manipulate the Bible to make it say what we want it to say, and that's happening all around us with the, the sexual revolution and then the homosexual revolution, the LGBTQ+, plus, I don't know where it ends, all that movement, what we see is that we're taking the Word of God and we say, I know it looks like it says this, but it doesn't really say this, so let me manipulate it and make it say what I want it to say. And that is... A really negative reality that we live in a lot of folks look to Jesus and they say well he is a, a, a great teacher and that's true he is a man of of great wisdom and that's true they say well he is a, a man that was a great great leader he changed the world and that's true even other religions they recognize Jesus to the Muslims he is a great prophet of Allah he is second only to Muhammad in Hinduism, he is a mystic that gives you some higher level of spiritual revelation. To the Mormons, he is the brother of Satan. You can look into that. 
To the Jehovah's Witnesses, he is a created, exalted being. Namely, he is Michael, the archangel. To those who preach a prosperity gospel, he is the method and he is the means that you can attain great wealth, great health, and great prosperity. So you do your part and he will do his part. There's a lot of misconceptions, but as we're going through the book of Luke, and that's where you can start going to, Luke chapter 4, as we're going through the book of Luke, one thing that I want us to focus on is who is Jesus? Not our preconceived notions, but what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? What about the man Jesus? What about God in the flesh Jesus? What about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the greater we know Jesus, the greater our life will be transformed and we will advance the kingdom of God. And so this evening, this morning rather, gosh, the day doesn't go by that quick, does it? This morning rather, what does the work of Jesus include? Look at Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. And stand with me as we read. <clears throat> it says, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. Lord God, we are so thankful to be here today. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship. Now, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you will speak to our hearts. I pray you will challenge us. I pray that we will draw closer to you we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The work of Jesus, the first thing I want you to see is that it involves the gathering. It involves the gathering. As Luke is telling of the life and the ministry of Jesus, the first place mentioned, the first place that Jesus visits. Remember, we just had the baptism in chapter 3. Early in chapter 4, we saw the temptation of Jesus. Now he's going out to begin his ministry and the first place that is mentioned is the synagogue. It says that he went and he went into various synagogues. Now, what is a synagogue? Synagogue just means the assembling or the assembly of the people. The assembling or the assembly of the people. Synagogues began about five to six hundred years before Christ. When the Babylonians came in, the temple was destroyed. Many of these Jewish folks were found dispersed. They were in exile. They were unable to engage in worship as they were used to. And so they began to make these synagogues. Now, to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 adult male believers and those families would come together and they would develop a synagogue and that went from 500 years before Christ all the way up until the day of Christ that we're reading about today did you know that in the day of Jesus historians tell us there were over 400 synagogues in the region there were lots of them now some of those would be just separate rooms in a home 
but in a larger city, there would be a total house of worship. For example, in Capernaum, there was a synagogue that was set apart for a large gathering for worship. And so they would meet in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and when they met, they would have a time of personal prayer, they would have a time of corporate prayer together. They would have a time to recite scriptures from the law and the prophets. And then they would have a time of preaching, of taking the word of God and explaining that to the people. And so what Jesus did, he comes into town, and you'll notice it says he went into the synagogue as was his, his custom. Did you see that? He went in the synagogue as was his custom. In other words, this is what he did. He was found in the house of prayer. He was found in the house of worship. It was a large part of his life. It's something that was important to him. The first place Jesus went as he began his ministry was into what we would call the church. And when I thought about that, it made me think about the priority of the church the priority of the church I want you to think about this question have you noticed that in our day there is less and less of a priority placed upon the church think about that do you agree with that do you, do you see that around you that in our current day there is less emphasis there is less of a priority placed upon the church I, I went in this week on my computer and I went to Google and I typed in the word church, and then I went to news articles, and I ran a search. I wanted to see some of the headlines that came up when I typed in church, and this is what I found. The Washington Post, it had a headline called The Great De-Churching. The Great De-Churching. I don't know if that's a word, but that's their headline. The Atlantic, why so many people have stopped going to church. The Wall Street Journal, why Sunday attendance is in decline. And even the Longview News Journal recently ran an article entitled Christianity in Decline. The news is all around us. We're not surprised by this. You don't have surprise on your face. You realize it. You've seen it happening for years and for decades now. Did you realize that in the year 2020, for the first time in the history of our nation, less than 50% of people hold a church membership. First time in our nation. A recent poll suggested that on a given Sunday, less than 30% of adult Americans are found in a house of worship. The decline is all around us, and we've got to realize that because can we just acknowledge that we have been blessed here at Woodland Hills? We know that many of you, Vernon, you've been here a long time. <clears throat> you remember when we came to church with a hammer and we tore down walls all the time. Denise, you and Kenneth, you know what I'm talking about. Throughout the years, we have seen steady, steady growth here at Woodland Hills. Even with Launch 24, and I just want to take a minute and say thank you. You guys have changed your schedule. You have embraced with so much support this new Launch 24. And I want you to know that we're reaching new people. It's working. The kingdom of God is being built because of your faithfulness. But don't be misinformed that this is happening everywhere. The universal church at wide in the United States of America is in great, great decline. There's this idea that we are individuals. I'm going to do it my way. I don't need the church. It, it's a false lie from the, the heart of the enemy that says you don't need the church. 
And there's a lot of folks who have bought into that lie. There are so many passages in the Bible that one cannot live out apart from the corporate body of Christ. Amen? Let me ask you, is the church important to you? Has the church blessed your life? Has the church benefited your spiritual walk with the Lord? And so the enemy wants to come in and say, you don't need the church. You can do it on your own. And so then I started thinking, why do folks avoid the church? Why do folks avoid the church? Do you know what I hear most often from folks? I hear this. You've heard it too, I bet. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You ever heard that? People say it all the time. Well, listen, I, I know you're inviting me and you're pressuring me, but I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And can we just acknowledge that's true? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. We are saved by, by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and church attendance does not save you. Amen? But I could also, I could be married to my lovely wife and never go home. But I'm going to tell you, it wouldn't go very well. Wouldn't work out very well for my life or for her life. You can be saved and not go to church, but it will negatively affect your spiritual life and you will fail at advancing the kingdom of God. You will fail at using your God-given gifts for the building up of his kingdom if you're not involved in a church. But we see it all around us. Why is the church so belittled today? I ask that question Asked some folks, and some responses came back. One reason is because we are extremely self-centered individuals, aren't we? We're selfish. We're busy. We have other events going on, and so maybe we just don't find time for the church. Maybe we are apathetic, and that means we just have lost our excitement. We're not zealous about the church or maybe even the things of God like we once were. I know folks who... They used to be so excited about the things of God. They couldn't wait to come and to worship and to sing the songs and to open up the word and to study it. And they would come back on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and they would have Bible studies. And it was a, a major part of their life. But as the years have gone by, they've lost that excitement. They've lost that zeal. They're not nearly as passionate as they once were. And maybe you look at your heart, and it could be that you see some of that happening in your life. Maybe folks don't get involved because they're afraid they won't fit in. They'll be judged. People won't accept me into it. I won't develop deep relationships at the church. It's brought to my attention that maybe it's generational. Maybe there's a, a youth exodus that we're not pouring Jesus into the lives of our young folks. And so as they get older, they begin to abandon the church. We've got to realize that there's something going on. There's something that's not good going on. And we come up with all sorts of excuses. We say, well, I don't like the style of music they sing. You ever heard that? I don't like the room because it's either too cold or it's too hot. Can I tell you what text I get more than anything else on a Sunday morning? Because one of my glorious jobs around here at Woodland Hills is being in control of the thermostats. Okay? And I do not get text on Sunday morning saying, Praise God, it's going to be a good day. I don't get texts on Sunday morning saying, hey, we're praying for the Lord to work in a mighty way. I get 10 text messages every Sunday morning saying, it's either too cold or it's either too hot. And so we, we live that. We experience that. Or maybe the, maybe the preacher's boring. 
You ever sat in a service and you wanted to poke your eyeball out because it was so boring? I know you have, right? I preached some of those. I know what it's like. We, we do that. <clears throat> and so we have these excuses. It reminds me of a lady who was visiting, and she came in, and she was met by an usher, and the usher said, hey, we're so glad you're here with us. Where would you like to sit? And the, the older lady said, I want to go right to the front, right on the front pew, right in the center. And the man shook his head and said, hey, can I help you out? You don't want to sit front and center. And she said, well, why not? And he said, because our preacher is so boring, he will put you to sleep. You want to sit at the back. And she said, sir, do you know who I am? And he said, no. She said, well, I am the preacher's mama, and you have greatly offended me. And the guy looked back, and he said, ma'am, do you know who I am? And she said, no. He said, good. And he, he ran off as quickly as he could. <clears throat> Maybe the sermon is boring. Maybe the preacher doesn't keep your attention. Maybe there's all these reasons, and there are some reasons, but listen to me, they're just excuses. It's all it is. It's just an excuse. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about if it's the, the song that we like. It's not about all of our preferences. It's not about the color of the carpet or the paint on the wall or any of that. It's all about Jesus. And so the Bible says that Jesus on the Sabbath he went into the synagogue because that was his custom. That's what he did. When you're involved in a church, you're not a spectator. It's not something that you come in and you just sit down and you watch. You get involved with a family. Anybody here, do you have great, <clears throat> great relationships in the church? Some, some of your closest friends are in the church, people that you love, people that you care for, people who would fight for you. They are found in the church. That's what the family of God is to be. And there's this new idea that you go into a church and you go in three minutes late, you sit towards the back, during that closing prayer you slip out, you don't talk to anybody, you don't meet anybody. That's not what the church is. The church is where we build relationships together. We get to know each other and we go out into the world to advance the kingdom of God together. And I will tell you, according to Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus is coming back for the church. So we find a church that we can support, that we can be present at, that we can be involved with. Now, that doesn't mean if you're on vacation, we're going to track you down and say, hey, you weren't here Sunday. We're not, we're not going to be like that. We're not to be legalistic about it. But listen, we're going to find our home in the church. So I see that, that he went to the synagogue. That's where he was. But then I also see something else. Look at verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. That, <clears throat> that's why we stand. It's in honor of the Word of God. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. And he found the place where it was written, and then he begins to read from Isaiah. Now, you'll notice he goes to the church, but when he's at the church or the synagogue, the priority is on, check this out, the priority is on the Word of God. <clears throat> he goes into the synagogue, he takes the scroll, he opens it up, he reads from Isaiah, and then he begins to preach on Isaiah. What you'll find in a lot of churches today is that preaching is becoming less and less 
and less. There are many churches today, and as builders come in, they build, and no longer is there a pulpit front and center. Do you know why we have this front and center? Because it reminds us that we are gathered together to open up the Word of God and to hear from God. That's what it reminds us. And there's a lot of churches that there, there's no longer any of this deep biblical preaching. That's why it's been said that American theology is 3,000 miles wide and half an inch deep. There's no depth to it. <clears throat> Can I tell you what you need? You don't need my opinion. You don't need my tips for how you can live a successful life. You don't need me to get up here and entertain you. You don't need a comedian. You don't need me to tell you how you can turn all your Mondays into Fridays. You don't need me to tell you how you can live your best life now. You don't need me to bring up some smoke and some mirrors and try to impress you with some theatrics. That, that's not what you need this morning. Do you know what we all need this morning? We don't need a new program. We don't need some great charisma that just draws people in. We don't need a concert. We don't need a performance. What we need is the Word of God. Amen? That's what we need. <clears throat> Every one of us in here, if you're college at the very top, if you're older, it doesn't matter who you are, all around this room, what we need is to hear from the Word of God. And there's a lot of this seeker-sensitive movement in churches to where, well, they said it's boring. We've got to do something else. And when we do that, we short-circuit the work of God. When you come to church, you've got to long for the Word of God. That's where the life change happens. The life change happens when we open up the Word of God and we begin to dig into it. Studies show us that even the majority of pastors, they don't have a biblical worldview. Their view of life is not founded upon the Word of God. And that is a great, great shame. When we come together, we put priority on the house of God, and then we come to put priority upon the Word of God because we know this is the key for our lives. So he takes the scrolls. Now, in this day, these small synagogues, they would not have all the scrolls, but evidently they had the scroll for Isaiah. And this would be two dowel rods on the end and parchment all wrapped up through it. Some of the scrolls would be four to five feet long. Longer scrolls could be up to 35 feet long. And so he takes the scroll, he begins to unwind it until he finds his spot. And everybody's standing, they're watching, they're waiting. He finds the spot, and then Jesus begins to read. Now, let's look at what he read. It involves the gathering, but I also want you to see it involves the good news. Look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. In recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, listen, this is good, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now listen, we, we may miss that, but this is big news that has just happened. He stands up and he begins to read from Isaiah. And then he says, today in your presence, this scripture has been fulfilled. 
Up until this point, they had been waiting for the coming Messiah. The entire Old Testament, if you look at it, it is pointing towards the coming Messiah, the coming Savior of the world. We are longing with great anticipation for Jesus. We realize that sin has come into the world and it has brought death. We see the effects of sin. We are longing for the day that the Messiah will come and he will set all of this right. And Isaiah is pointing to the coming Messiah. He's pointing to the great day that the great reversal will happen. There will be redemption. There will be reconciliation. The goodness is coming. And Jesus says, today in your presence, this has happened. And when he says that, Jesus says, I am the one anointed in the Spirit. I am the one who is bringing you the good news. I am bringing you a new age for humanity. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the one who's going to fulfill what you have been waiting for for so, so long. I'm the one who's going to bring salvation of God and free those who are suffering. Now, when he reads from Isaiah, there are some points that we've got to go through real quickly. I realize it's 10:15. Let's put our running shoes on. Let's look through this, okay? Number one, he says, good news to the poor. I bring good news to the poor. And that could be referring to the outsiders. It could be referring to those in poverty. It could be referring to those who, by the view of culture, they are outside the realm of the reach of God. But Jesus says, I brought good news to the poor. Do you realize that when Jesus was walking, he spent lots of time with tax collectors and sinners? He spent a lot of time with the outcast. He spent a lot of times with the ones that the religious folks wanted nothing to do with. But Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he says, I bring good news to the poor. You may feel like you are unimportant to everybody else, but you are important to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You may not have many folks calling you, checking on you, coming by to see you, but when it comes to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he looks to you and he says, I see great value in you. I see great value in your life. I have come not just to bring good news to the rich or the wealthy or the popular, but I came for the poor. But even more so than that, there's the idea of being poor in spirit. Listen, you may have a lot of money this morning. You may be very wealthy this morning, but you can still be very poor. I came for the poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be saved until you know that you're lost. You cannot be saved until you realize that there's nothing that you can do to be right with God. When you're poor in spirit, it means that you look at your life and you say, Man, I've messed up. I am so <clears throat> sinful. I'm so broken. I'm so outcast. I need somebody else. I can't do this on my own. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the starting spot is with the poor. But then he says, liberty to the captives. Captive refers to an individual who has been prisoner. And liberty refers to salvation. The Bible says that there are a lot of folks who are in captivity to sin. You don't have to raise your hand, but many of us in here, we know what that's like. There have been times that we felt like we were in bondage to sin, in bondage to addiction, 
and bondage to things that do not bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus comes and says, I have come so that you can find liberty from the bondage, that you can be set free from the bondage that you find yourself in. Anybody found that in your life? Have you found that liberty that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ? I've got a friend. He's in the room somewhere, and he tells his testimony. For years, he was on drugs, and he hid it from everybody so well. He was still involved with the church. His wife didn't even know about it. And so he was going through all these motions, but on the side, he was in such bondage to this drug addiction. And one day, it found him out, and he hit rock bottom in a jail cell. And he tells a story, and he said, when that happened, I realized that I have done so many wrong things. And he says, I got on my knees, and I began to cry out to God and said, Lord, if you will just help me. I know I've done wrong. I want to surrender my heart and my life to you. I've been playing games. I don't want to play games anymore. I want you to save me. He got saved, and he says that God took that bondage from him, and he doesn't struggle with that anymore. This has been years and years and years ago, and now he is serving the Lord as well as anybody I've ever seen in my life. And when I look at him, that's what I see. I see liberty to the captives. I see the power of God. I see how the Lord Jesus Christ can take a life that's going the wrong way and can put new hope and new joy into that life. We serve a powerful Lord. Sight to the blind It's talking about spiritual blindness. Have you ever seen someone that you can give them verse after verse after verse, scriptural truth after truth after truth, and they just neglect it? They just can't see it? Their heart is hardened? It's the work of Jesus that comes in and softens that heart and opens those eyes. Liberty to those who are oppressed. Do you ever feel just broken down in life? you ever feel like you're just weighted down? There's so much you need to do. And you feel the burden all around you. It's the Lord who gives you rest. It's the Lord who breaks that oppression. But the last thing he says is this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you look back in the Old Testament, you'll find a reference to the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was a time when, imagine this, all the debts were wiped out. Somebody say amen, that's good stuff. All the debts were wiped out. <clears throat> all the slaves were set free at the year of Jubilee. It would happen about once in a lifetime. All the slaves were set free. If you sold land so that you could pay off a debt at the year of Jubilee, your family received that land back. The land went back to the rightful owner. It was a great moment of hope. It was a moment of hope that says, I know things have not been going well. I know maybe there's been some bad choices, some bad decisions, but you have hope now, and everything is going to be set right once again. And he says, there's a new year of Jubilee, and the new year of Jubilee comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. All your debts... Through Jesus, they're going to be canceled out. Amen? All the sin that, that, that's in your life, it's going to be thrown away with. There is a new day that's coming, and this new day comes with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew what the year of Jubilee was, but now there's a new era, there's a new day, there's a new day that brings so much joy and so much hope. Reminds me of Colossians 2, and this applies to every one of us who are believers. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
that is set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It says he took your sin, every one of your sins, and he nailed them to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the year of jubilee. That's the year of hope. There's a lot of folks today, maybe even in this room, and you, you feel hopeless. Life is just pushing you one way to the next, and you feel under such a load. Can I tell you what you need is not more money? What you need is not better friends, a new relationship. What you need is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can set you free. And he stopped. I find it very interesting. He stopped because the next verse in Isaiah begins to talk about the judgment of God. And we'll close with this. I'm reminded that we're in this day of grace right now, but judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. So it's as if he got to the comma halfway through the thought. He's reading in Isaiah, and they expect him to continue, but he stops. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant, and then he begins to teach. And he says, this is me. I'm the one you've been waiting for. But they would know the reminder is that judgment is next. Hebrews 3, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There's a lot of folks who plan one day to do great things for the kingdom of God. One day, I'm going to get my priorities lined up. One day, I'm going to live my life in a way that counts. One day, I'm going to do this, that, or the other. But the Bible reminds us, today is the day of salvation. You can't put it off. I don't know what tomorrow holds, and you don't either. All that we have is today. All that we have is in this moment. If we're going to advance the kingdom of God, we must focus on today. Let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. We've seen a couple of things today. One we saw, there, there's got to be a priority on the church. Maybe for you, you look at your life and you say, you know, I've kind of lost my zeal. I've lost my passion. I've made lots of excuses. And I need to make some changes. Maybe you're looking for a church home to join, church membership. That's, that's pretty important. We'd love to have you right here. Maybe you look at it and you say, I've lost my priority on the Word of God. I, I don't spend as much time in the Word of God. And the Lord's challenged me that I need to focus on His Word even to a deeper level. But maybe you just need some time to think about who Jesus is what he's done for your life. Let me read it again. He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to pro proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Take a moment and thank God for that in your heart. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for the hope that you give me. Lord, we are grateful. We pray that what you've called us to do, Lord, we will respond in faith this morning. God, today is the day. Let our hearts not to be hardened, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Stand with us. Let's sing together. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and Find in me thine all in all. Jesus.
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power, thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left crimson stain, he washed white as snow. And when before the throne I stand, Tied my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it 